migration as a as a practice, as a, an ongoing trauma, say, is often obsessed with demonstrating its arrival. So an immigrant and its immigrant generations that follow want to always say, I'm American, I've arrived, I'm here, and this past world is particularly something I can reject in ridiculing it. Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan, and I'll be your host. Join me and find joy in conversation because, well, it's a mitzvah. Growing up, I spent a lot of time at the library with my father. We were constantly returning books and picking up even more. My dad spent what felt like hours perusing the stacks, searching for novels. Needless to say, as a child, this bored me. It would take a few more years before I started getting caught up in the mystique of libraries and bookstores, the allure of entire worlds of words bound together in neat little rows. For as long as I can remember, my dad has always read detective novels. Murder and mystery are still his favorite literary fare, and his appetite remains voracious. It's insatiable. We always left the library with a pile of Sue Grafton and James Patterson books. If there was a crime to solve in under 300 pages, chances are my father wanted to turn the page until the plot twisted, until the gumshoe worked through their inner demons long enough to make an arrest and put the case to rest. Memories of my dad from my childhood are a composite of books, an endless stream of coffee, and Law and & Order episodes. Maybe I'm conflating scenes from my childhood, but I seem to recall my dad watching detectives on TV and then turning his attention to those on the page during commercials, pivoting between the television screen and the words on the page, flipping between plot points and dialogue among hard scrabble cops on the beat. My sister was no stranger to gobbling up novels as well. As a teenager, she tore through Diane Steele's romance paperbacks that she borrowed from our grandmother. It was a sight to behold, my elderly Nana, who used a walker to get around, and my field hockey-playing sister, swapping sagas of lust and longing, with names that made me blush then, and still do today. My first taste of reading for pleasure came in fifth grade. Until then, I struggled to read. Embarrassment ensued when I couldn't comprehend a story in school or when I stumbled over unfamiliar vocabulary. So reading felt like a chore for many years. I picked up books out of obligation and put them down as soon as I completed an assignment. Then with the help of a teacher, I was forced through this reluctance. Soon my trips to the library with my dad were mutually gratifying. Gone were the days when I tried to entertain myself by playing hide and seek between rows of books. Now I was searching for the written word to entertain me and transport me. And like my dad and my sister, I landed on some pulp fiction of my own. At age 9 or 10, Goosebumps novels or anything revolving around sports caught my eye. At that age, I had no qualms with reading this fun fiction. As a new reader, it was my prerogative for literature to entertain. Pages were places of escape, not necessarily edification. And this was perfectly fine by me. It would be an understatement to say that books were staples of my family life. Yet highbrow sensibilities did not define us and the immense joy that came from reading to relax. 
Yet these genres, mystery, romance, horror, they're often dismissed by a roll of the eyes or a wag of the tongue. To some, these works are little more than literary trash. But what do we miss when entire literary genres are excluded from scholarly discussion? Why not extend our intellectual curiosities to books that countless readers curl up with and fall into? What happens when we suspend our judgment and take trash novels seriously? We may just realize that there's more to this literature and its audiences than we often give credit. So when I learned about Shund literature, Yiddish trash literature, I was taken aback. Who knew that Yiddish writers took their turn at penning westerns, fantasy, and mystery novels? I always equated Yiddish literature with towering icons like Shalom Alechem and writers who remain celebrated for stories that captured and shaped the mood of modernity among Yiddish-speaking Jews. Over time, I have come to enjoy reading the works within the celebrated Yiddish canon, but I was shocked when I learned of the existence in Yiddish of a vast expanse of writing, writing that resembles what my dad or my sister could be found reading in English even today. It made me imagine and wonder whether my own Yiddish-speaking relatives of the past the ones that I've romanticized as yeshiva-studying, shul-attending, Talmud-literate people, it made me wonder whether they read Shun novels themselves. Did they open a Yiddish newspaper only to immerse themselves in fantastical tales and flights of wonderment? So I set out to learn more about Shun literature, the Yiddish fiction of the masses. I spoke to Saul Noam Zaret, an associate professor of Yiddish literature at Harvard University. Let's listen to Saul and learn more about the Yiddish that doesn't always get its fair share of attention today. Let's learn about Shund writing, the people who read it, and what it can tell us about cultural diffusion, acculturation, and modernity. Yella, let's learn together. I'm Saul Zaret, Associate Professor of Yiddish Literature at Harvard University in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations and Comparative Literature. And I work on uh, 20th century Yiddish literature for the most part. Before we get into the particularities of Shun, let's get a better sense of how varied Yiddish literature can be overall. Yiddish is a Jewish language in that it is already a moment of fusion between different cultures. And that also, in that way, informs what kind of literature might be made of and in that language. So that Yiddish literature, which also has a very long history, also has a very varied history. It's not merely the Hasidic tales of, say, the 18th and 19th century, but one with a wide variety of functions. So the first Yiddish books are, for the most part, liturgical and Jewish-oriented toward Jewish practice, but then also at the same time would be translation or adaptation of non-Jewish literature, tales of night and princes and kings and queens. This goes more or less throughout the history of Yiddish literature, which has a kind of volatility to it, in that it really only reaches kind of apex, a sense of itself as a field worthy of serious attention in the 19th century with modern Yiddish literature. Yiddish is not a static language. It's not grounded in just one time or place. So how has Yiddish been shaped by movement? And how has movement 
enabled the language to remain vital when it's spoken and as a literary language. Yiddish, in fact, is a migratory language and moves as Jews leave for economic reasons, but also in terms of persecution from Western and Central Europe or from Germanic lands moving eastward into Eastern Europe, they bring Yiddish with them. And in that moment, of course, Yiddish changes. So Yiddish originally in the Germanic language, Germanic lands is a Germanic language, but also brings with it certain languages that, that the Jews themselves in those communities came with. So some Romance language as well, and a few other sort of language particles here and there. But when it moves east, it really starts taking on aspects of Slavic languages, not only vocabulary, but also grammatically. So it becomes fused again in a certain way. Yiddish doesn't remain in Europe. The language and its speakers make their way around the world. So what happens to Yiddish as a language? And what happens to its speakers? What does migration mean for Yiddish literary productions in the United States in particular? When they move to the United States, they bring Yiddish with them. And as migrants tend to do, they create communities that want to support one another and want to sort of express whatever the traumas, the highs and lows of modernization, they want to express them in the language that they hold dear. And so Yiddish becomes a language of that experience. It becomes, a Yiddish literature is a language of modernity. When I think about literature, my mind intuitively goes to classrooms, literary circles, and I think about spaces where the intelligentsia gather. Is this where Yiddish literature in the United States circulated? So the first thing to note about a Yiddish literature is the conditions of it arriving in a reader's particular hands. Now, we sometimes sort of ideally think of literature as something that happens in books, that takes place in salons, that has a kind of elitism to it. But Yiddish literature from its very beginning is part of a mass culture. A Yiddish as a language, the vernacular as a language of the mass. The first and primary site of Yiddish literature especially in the United States, is the Yiddish press. In particular, the forewords, the now today known as the Yiddish forward. In Eastern Europe, uh, especially in the Russian Empire, there were prohibitions on Yiddish and Jewish newspapers. With the large wave of migration in the late 19th century, there was the possibility of having not only Yiddish newspapers, Yiddish newspapers that reached large groups of people. And this is where also Yiddish literature found itself. Many of these newspapers were founded by certain Enlightenment figures or people interested in, in modernizing Jewish experience and saw literature as a vehicle for educating the masses, but also as a site of national development, say, or of socialist agitation. It was a site for artistic creativity, a kind of balance between meeting the needs of the masses, <laughs> answering the demands of entrepreneurs trying to make money off of Yiddish literature and the Yiddish press, and trying to understand what it might mean to make Yiddish or Jewish art. As Yiddish literature made its way into people's hands in the United States, when exactly did shunj literature, trash literature, when did it appear, and what did it look like? You have during this same period, say early 20th century, the dawn of something known as Schund literature or trash literature, which is your serialized boilerplate novels, many of them translated or adapted from 
foreign, often French, German, Russian versions of these same kinds of stories. Let's look at some examples of Shun novels. Let's learn a little bit about some of the titles, the plots in these stories, the characters that a Yiddish reader might have encountered when picking up Shun writings. Your maid falling in love with their masters, discovering that they themselves are descended from some kind of aristocratic thing. You have sensationalist stories of the maiden of the shtetl falling in love with the non-Jewish pan and all the drama that ensues. You have that kind of entertainment literature, which can often also have a kind of pedagogical element to it, at the same time that you have the rise of Yiddish modernism. So Shund is a great example for how all this stuff gets mixed up in an amazing way. So, for instance, the foreword, the great socialist newspaper of the United States, publishes, on its weekends, it publishes good literature, high literature, more or less. Still in serialized form, still somewhat popular, so writers like Sholomash, Judith Zinger, you know, authors who had a kind of reputation also in translation into English, but who were thought of as the great writers of Yiddish literature. At the same time, during the week, they're publishing their boilerplate Shun novel. Now, a lot of them um, will be about an immigrant experience because they're writing literature that will, that they want to appeal to those who are actually going through the things that the novels may describe. So it's a story about an immigrant struggling in America in one way. And as we know in much popular literature, the ending is going to be a good ending. Now, the question is, how do we construe the happy ending? What is being told or what kind of education is the newspaper or the novelist trying to give the readers through this happy ending? Now, the ending, the, the hero is going to end up being a socialist in some way. So there's going to have a political element to the story. He is going to organize laborers. He's going to, in one way, rebel against uh, Jewish traditional norms. He's going to leave behind something of his Jewish religious past as this hero. At the same time, that kind of political element is going to be balanced by entertainment. So there's going to be a love story. There's going to be rivals. There's going to be a whole host of entertaining things that happen at once that may not be subservient entirely to the political ideal that's also embedded in the text. So... What's amazing about Shund is that it needs to, in some way, negotiate all these different modes at once. At the same time, the novel itself, the structure of the novel, may be based on a non-Jewish novel altogether. Often editors, this didn't happen as much in Corvitz, but an editor would get whatever the latest like fad of a novel that was going through in English or in Russian, give it to one of his lackeys, one of his co-editors, and say, here, write a novel. No, don't translate this novel, but write a novel that's like this one and divide it up into X number of chapters that we can publish over X number of months. Change this main character from a Polish aristocrat to a Jewish moneylender. In this way, some of the ideologies that are part of that novel as it appeared in Paris will be passed on to the Jewish reader. At the same time, there's going to be all these efforts to both Judaize the text in some way, so make it form a kind of nationalist ideology, while at the same time preserving some of its exoticism. And at the same time, maybe inserting some of the other kinds of ideologies, whether it be socialist or otherwise, into the text. So it's kind of a, a cauldron of some kind. 
not all these novels are great. Uh, they can be entertaining without great. We all we know this today when it comes to TV and, and how streaming works these days. All they need to do is get you to want to read the next chapter. In fact, you may forget about the beginning of the novel by the time you get to the end. And so many of these novels will be somewhat inconsistent. Or an editor may say, oh, this line of the plot is not good. Let's, let's leave this one and, and push the novel somewhere else. Or in some cases, the novelist might be fired in the middle of, of a novel being written. So the editor will have to hire somebody else to finish the novel. So it, it'll be very inconsistent. And in that way, also reflecting the kind of vicissitudes um, that come with Yiddish culture. The title of the translation is Diary of a Lonely Girl or the Battle Against Free Love. It's an amazing novel about uh, centering this, this one woman's life and her uh, battle against free love and various men that court her throughout the length of the diary as it was serialized in various places. Amazing conversations between her and various lovers, her rejection of these lovers for one reason. It's really a fantastic novel. I highly recommend it. But this, of course, is adapting a very popular mode of the modern European, Euro-American novel, that is the diary. Some of the first novels of 17th, 18th, 19th century involve the diary as a crucial genre within the construction of the novel. And this makes use of that in some ways, just simply adapts it right away. But of course, turning it into Yiddish, making it about the relevance of free love within you know, early 20th century America, the whole idea of free love as it was beginning to be articulated, how that might align next to feminism, or ideas of feminism, ideas of equality, while also being written in Yiddish and having something to do with the Jewish community of the U.S., of figures who have recently come to America, how they encounter these ideas, how they inherit those ideas from Europe, and how they encounter them in their articulation in the United States. The name of the novel is The Bloody Woman, and it's an amazing murder-lust kind of novel, an investigation novel sort of detective fiction, but you know who the killer is from the very beginning, in which a woman gets her husband murdered so that she can marry her longtime lover, hiding this murder, of course, from her children, yet they find out, and there's a whole investigation going on of the children trying to expose the mother, the evil mother figure. And there's like a wide range of characters around of the Warsaw world. There's a whole family that's been framed for the murder that end up going to Siberia and a whole set of strange machinations around this. Of course, at the same time as this novel is coming out in Yiddish, there are thousands of novels just like it coming out in French, German, and in the other language. So it's often very difficult to find what exactly is the model, which is the original, which is the copy. At one point, two of the characters who are working on trying to prove who killed uh, the father figure. They're sort of working, trying to figure out what's going on. And one character says to another, if only I were Sherlock Holmes, this would be done so much quicker. Which is, which is a fantastic line, because one thing it's saying is that everyone who's reading this text knows Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes was also translated into Yiddish. As is well known, Sherlock Holmes was translated into every language. It was just a global literary phenomenon. And on one hand, it's admitting, you know what, this is not as good as Sherlock Holmes. Uh, we admit, this novel, not as good. But it's trying to be like Sherlock I know you want Sherlock Holmes, so please have mercy on us and continue reading, even though this is taking much longer than it should. Right? Sherlock Holmes, the whole thing is done in like 
20 pages max, right? It's a short story. This novel is going to go for a year, year and a half, and you're just going to have to stick with us as we sort of bumble along to try to solve this crime. I, I think it's a great moment where translation is admitted or translatability is sort of an important crux for how this works and that your enjoyment of this text as a reader depends on your kind of suspending your judgment while also enjoying the process of translation itself. Trash novels. Shunned literature. It may seem rather easy to dismiss and forget about these genres. But does it have a legacy? Does shunned echo and reverberate across American culture in some way? Has shunned subtly, silently, even clandestinely entered into America's consciousness? Traditionally, in scholarship, we've looked to the big names. So, Sean Aleichem being the central, or one of the biggest figures of Yiddish literature, and his character of Tevye, um, or various other characters, iconic characters that have certainly had enormous influence on other literatures. So, you know, Isaac Babel in Russian, or certainly a whole generation of Jewish-American writers like Saul Bellow, Bernard Malamud, Isaac Bashevis Singer, who's both a Yiddish and then a translated into English writer, are indebted to this figure, or even how Tevye becomes such a, a global phenomenon through Fiddler on the Roof, right? So we could look at these individual figures and their particular, you know, the particular influence of one work or one writer and the sort of genealogies that come out of it. And that certainly is something we should take into account. Shalom Lechem is an enormous figure and has had an impact on world literature that is worth measuring. What's harder is trying to think about some of the other kind of murkier cultural ge genealogies. So what is it that an everyday Jew reads and what, what influence does that have on their ability to then function with the American society. So if the everyday Jew, say the everyday Yiddish-speaking American immigrant is reading Shund every day, if that's the thing that they're consuming, how do they bring those stories with them? Or what exactly of those stories are they bringing with them into American culture afterwards? And this is, I think, a crucial question for something like this genealogy that we often measure between vaudeville, Broadway, Hollywood. And these things are happening at the same time so, say, the birth of Shund is, in America, certainly is late 19th century, early 20th century, and continues all the way to the end of the forward since the 1990s. It doesn't stop. Even today, maybe one considers certain parts of Yiddish literature that are produced today have a, maybe a, an aspiration towards a certain kind of uh, a mass interest, but that's neither here nor there. But the child of the Yiddish immigrant on the Lower East Side that gets involved in, Broadway, in, in vaudeville, that kind of vernacular entertainment in which Jewish stereotype or stereotypes of Jewishness sort of wrote boilerplate images of Jewishness are part of how entertainment works or ethnic entertainment works in America. That, that that stereotyping, that kind of playing up the greenhorn, making fun of the greenhorn, deconstructing the deep greenhorn is deeply embedded in how entertainment works, in entertainment works in America. Something that's referred to, and this I'm calling my, my colleague, Eddie Portnoy and others, called Jew faith. Right? or what's called playing the heeb. Now, that's one of several ethnic stereotypes and racial stereotypes that appear on vaudeville or in American entertainment writ large. Blackface as well, and what it means to be a woman on stage in vaudeville and the objectification of the woman's body in those spaces. Or, you know, all those kinds of constructions are, can we say that they're indebted to Shund or that Shund is part of that story? It's hard to tell, right? Because Shund 
in many ways, or Yiddish popular literature, is for the immigrant in his immigrantness. What does it mean to take or his or her immigrantness? What does it mean then to take that experience and try to objectify it for a general American audience or for an urban American audience? Those are two very different things, of course. And then to translate that a, a second time over to Broadway, in which one's Jewishness is often erased or allegorized in certain ways. One can talk about, of course, if we turn back to Yiddish theater, the Yiddish melodrama, the Yiddish musical melodrama, and its translation into the Broadway musical. Broadway musicals is a sort of later construction or almost simultaneous. Who comes before whom is another question. And then what does that mean for something like founded largely, as has been demonstrated in many different ways, by a number of children of Jewish immigrants? And what their sensibilities or what parts of Yiddish literature do they inherit? What do they reject? And how might that inform the creation of perhaps one of the most dominant forms of American culture in the 20th century? How does cultural translation work? And I think it's something of a kind of mystery box. One of the main things that happens is a disavowal. We have many people who are descendants from Jewish immigrants who base some of their cultural activity on a kind of rejection of that world or an assumed rejection of that world. And that's where it becomes tough to read is this particular thing that they're making as a a Jewish person yet who doesn't really consider their Jewishness very important, how do we understand that relationship to that thing which they've rejected? Or I think of someone like Saul Bellow, grew up in a Yiddish-speaking home and yet aspired to a certain kind of American embeddedness for his writing. His characters are Jewish, they say things about Jewishness, but his aspiration is very much for the universe, the cosmos, as he often says it arriving at some kind of universality in his writing. And a similar thing can be said about someone like LeBron, whose characters are deeply embedded in a very immigrant Newark neighborhood. But their place is America. This is a literature of and for America. Just to tell a personal story that I recently thought of, I was uh, meeting with an aunt. Who had a, I was like eight or nine years old. She's an eccentric. She you know, was a half-sister sister of my mother, and sort of of America in a certain way that I never felt growing up, just to get sort of autobiographical. And I, at eight or nine years old, had this aspiration to become a writer. I didn't know exactly what that meant. And I was talking to her about it. We were driving uh, down a sort of an American highway of some kind, so it had a sort of on-the-road, <laughs> stereotypical American feel. And she asked me, so do you think you're going to write the great American novel? <laughs> My eccentric aunt is asking me at eight or nine years old whether I'm going to write the great American novel. And I think, you know, that's my personal experience. But I think if we think about it in terms of if you're a writer coming of age, say, in the post-war period, and you're emerging out of a sort of nativism of the 20s and 30s that was harrowing probably as a young person to experience, and you are rejecting in some ways an immigrant past that you want to get away from, that you want to establish your embeddedness and landedness within American culture, you aspire to that kind of thing. I want to write the great American novel. I want to participate in American culture in a fundamental way. Now, what happens is that in that erasure, there's a set of one, a set of guilt, but also a sense of inability to actually arrive at that destination. 
that as much as Saul Bellow wants to be the great American novelist and maybe even is rewarded as such, right? He gets the Nobel Prize. There's still a sense that he's a Jewish writer and he would hate it when people would call him a Jewish writer, but people would continually call him a Jewish writer and identify within his work certain kinds of indebtedness that they might have to Shomalechem, to this or that writer, to Kafka or whatever else it might be. So to think about what that legacy might be is, as I think, really complicated because it has to do with both what an app, how to read an absence, how to read something that's not there, and also how to read guilt or how to read a kind of incompleteness that one might find in a particular project. What can Yiddish literature help us understand about the Jewish modernization? What is Yiddish literature's relationship with Jewishness and with Jewish identity? So if you think of early writers of Yiddish literature like Shlomo Leichem, but certainly his predecessor, someone like Mendel and Svarim, or also known as Shai Abramovich, and Yudlamid Peretz, these the three great founders of Yiddish literature, in some ways their work builds off of a, a very difficult tension. Their work, largely though not entirely, is centered on the shtetl, on this small urban environment and characters living within it. And they themselves are writing from the big city that they've already moved to. They themselves have already left this world behind. And often their work is very critical and satirical of those places. Tevye is meant to be someone who is funny and backwards in some way and hasn't yet arrived at modernity. So there is a kind of barb built into Yiddish literature as a modern thing in that it's describing a world almost anachronistically that one has already left behind. Modern Yiddish literature as a phenomenon is a literature about a past written for people that has left that past behind, a public that has left that past behind, which makes it have a really fundamental and I think very like productive contradiction built into it. This is a literature that is always moving away from its own foundation. We're writing a, a Jewish literature, though we don't want to be so Jewish anymore. For writers who operated in Yiddish, why do they work in this language? Was it a language selected out of convenience and familiarity? Was it an ideological choice? Does writing in Yiddish mean that texts deal with Jewish themes and content? Anna Margolin, the pen name of Rosa Levenpoint, one of the most important modernist Yiddish writers, born in Eastern Europe, uh, but does most of her writing in the United States, and just an amazing poet whose writing evinces almost no connection to Jewishness, even though she writes in Yiddish, or she plays with, with what Jewishness might mean in a way that rejects, doesn't even need to reject a, a, a traditional past. It simply doesn't seem to be relevant to her poetry. She'll write poetry, which is a whole a series of poems about Mary, about Mother Mary, not in any overt attempt to adopt Christianity, but just simply as a symbol or as an object that her poetry can take up as it could take up any almost any object from the Western tradition. Her poetry is extremely translatable, if that makes sense, because it doesn't have too many of those untranslatable vocabularies that we might associate with a certain kind of Jewish traditional life. It is dark, almost, as quoting my colleague Barbara Mann, has a kind of sculptural quality to it, kind of approaching a certain kind of abstraction, despite it being very personal poetry, often about the speaker's personal love life and other kinds of things, but it still has an impressive kind of abstractness to it that makes it some of the best poetry, best kind of modernist poetry that I've ever read. So 
in that sense, there too is a kind of disavowal of Jewishness and approaching a certain kind of universal world literature through it in Yiddish, in and for Yiddish. You also have large numbers of translation projects in which there's translating of all of world literature into Yiddish, an attempt to enrich Yiddish as a secular literature and to meet the demands of its readers who didn't necessarily want to only consume literature obsessed and explicitly connected to a kind of Jewish collectivity. Shund being one of those examples in which you didn't have to always Judaize a plot. In fact, sometimes the more attractive Shund novel was simply a copy of a very exotic world, like novels, European novels that are, say, racist and even Orientalist, about some kind of distant Eastern world, and to simply translate that into Yiddish for the entertainment of its readers, who, when they're sitting down at the end of a long workday and just want to read, you know, a couple hundred words of sensationalist prose, don't want to have to think about their Jewish identity. So that kind of disavowal, I think, or that kind of tension between a literature focused toward a kind of Jewish national aim as opposed to a literature that is just beating the particular aesthetic demands of its readers is really present, I think, fundamental to how modern Yiddish literature works. So take one of the most important Shun writers by the name of one of the few that actually know their name, Sarah Smith. She immigrates to the United States in the early 20th century from Hungary. She actually, since she comes from uh, Hungary, Jews in, in that sort of area of Eastern Europe often tended to be more assimilated, so she actually didn't grow up with very much Yiddish. She's a Hungarian-speaking. She came to the United States, was part of this immigrant community, and needed to make a living. And so she actually learns Yiddish in order to make a living and ends up writing a series of Yiddish, sensationalist Yiddish novels in the 1920s and 30s, and also becomes a journalist and all these other things in Yiddish. But Yiddish was actually her ticket to making a living. So, you know, what, there's lots of different kinds of calculations that might go in uh, into that language choice. Or finally, of course, the most famous example, Isaac Bishev begins as a writer in Eastern Europe, part of an elite group of uh, what we call positivists or realists, uh, naturalists, writing in Warsaw, comes to the United States as a sort of crisis of identity, doesn't know what to do with himself, and starts to write Yiddish literature here because that's all he can do. But at some point in the 19th, late 40s, early 50s, realizes that translation is a really good thing for him and becomes in some way an American writer in a way that he could never have thought of previously and writes what he calls second original. So he'll write a story in Yiddish, publish it in the Forwards, where he was regularly published or some other Yiddish publication, but immediately be ready to get that translated and to help the translation along himself sort of collaborate with his translators in order to become an American writer, someone who was regularly published in The New Yorker and then eventually won the Nobel Prize for being in some ways bilingual. So there's just sort of a lot of ways that this kind of language problem gets negotiated around Yiddish, around a departure from Yiddish. In certain ways, it can feel like Yiddish literature is a thing of the past. But is that actually the case? Is that really true? What's the standing of Yiddish as a language in the world today? Yeah, so Yiddish has, like, just an incredible and strange continuing life slash afterlife. On the one hand, Yiddish, especially as part of, say, American entertainment industry, has a kind of stereotypical 
what Jeffrey Sandler refers to as a kind of post-vernacular life, meaning it's somehow a really important language of comedy within Hollywood and the various ways that Yiddish is essential for signaling and announcing Jewish difference. And so Yiddish has a really strong hold on the popular imagination. Americans, no matter your religious, ethnic, racial identification, will know some Yiddish. I mean, it'll be there in some way. It has also a, a set of internal communal codes as well for American Jewish communities. Yet at the same time, Yiddish itself or groups of Yiddishists of various kinds persist and continue to produce literature. And then on top of that, you have an enormous Hasidic community, ultra-Orthodox community, for whom Yiddish is indeed their vernacular. Many people think that Yiddish is a dying or dead language. But according to, if not all the experts, there's nothing endangered about Yiddish. It has hundreds of thousands of speakers who are going through various different forms of modernization and shift and change in their daily lives. And the changes of, within the Hasidic community have been rapid and are continuing to this day. But they too produce certain kinds of literature, maybe not ones that we as good secular or modernizing modern people might want to consume, but it exists and it's changing its shape every day as well. Other forms of, of, of modern Yiddish literature take a, or cultural production take a kind of hybrid form in that there's a return. I don't want to say Renaissance because that's what, uh, if you go to like a New York Times, they'll do like uh, every three or four months, they'll do an article about the Renaissance of Yiddish, about the number of students going to take Yiddish classes, about the new dictionaries that are coming out and all different kinds, or the new translation of Harry Potter into Yiddish. All of these things are wonderful and great, but I wouldn't necessarily call it a renaissance or even a return. Like my interest in Yiddish, am I returning to Yiddish? This is the language of my grandparents, and I'm speaking and studying in ways that don't actually or wouldn't actually make sense to them. It was simply the language of their life, whereas for me, it's a language that gives me access to different forms of Jewish culture that I wouldn't have access to otherwise. Certain kinds of vocabulary that I'm interested in, not as something to be preserved or reinvigorated, but something that is active and new and productive in my life today. So that's what I mean by, by Yiddish having a kind of dynamism to it, rather than simply being something that has died and being revived or something whose history is predictable. Saul has shared so much with us already about Yiddish literature. But what's his personal connection to Yiddish? How did he arrive at this relationship that he has with Yiddish as a scholar? Yeah, I'm from Worcester, Massachusetts. I was born into a, a family with a certain connection to kind of Hebraist path. So my grandfather was a trained, was a dentist, but also a trained Hebrew teacher from Hebrew College, or at the time Hebrew Teachers College, as was my father, who was not retired, but was actually a letter carrier, but he was also trained as a teacher of the Hebrew language. And yet my grandparents also spoke Yiddish to one another, and I heard a lot of Yiddish. And so I grew up, but my grandfather only spoke to me in Hebrew, even if I heard Yiddish also around. And as I grew up and moved forward and was interested in literature, I I you know, wanted to be myself maybe a poet in English, but I also was very much interested in studying Hebrew literature and Israeli literature. And along the way, after graduating from undergrad, I ended up in Israel, and I was studying and I had some time so I decided if I was going to be studying, if I was going to become a scholar of Hebrew literature and of Israeli literature, I need to learn another language. Yiddish offered a, a sort of ticket home. Not that I arrived at home in the end. I remember speaking um, Yiddish to my grandfather who was, at that time was very old and was 
I wasn't fluent enough to actually speak with him. I, I did become later, but at the time I was still a beginner. And I remember speaking to him, and he laughed at me. He said, Heret Yiddish via Goy. So he speaks Yiddish like he's not Jewish, like he's a Goy. And that was hard to hear because it wasn't... So my attraction to Yiddish was going away from this place that didn't feel home, but I didn't necessarily arrive back into some authentic space. Or later, because my Yiddish is rather literary and based on reading of books for the most part and speaking to my friends who also read books, when I would speak Yiddish with my grandmother, with my bubby, she would say, oh, you sound like a rabbi. Because my Yiddish would be more peppered towards the rabbinic or Hebraic element within Yiddish. And so I didn't sound, I, there's no way I could sound like an early 20th century immigrant to America. So I arrived in Yiddish as something that was partially owned by my family, by something I could trace to my family. But no one in my family was a literal. Well, no one was literati. No one was studying, was using Yiddish as a way to think about these kinds of things. It was simply the language of their everyday life. And Yiddish is not the language of my everyday life. It's a language of, of scholarship, something that's deeply connected to my life and how I think about the world today and think about. Jewishness in the world today. And I think this is an important, at least for me, important sort of journey in which I'm not trying to recover something. I'm not proposing Yiddish as something more authentic than any other way of being Jewish or of engaging with Jewishness in the world, so much as one that has a productive and complicated genealogy with a kind of open and exciting future to it. A special thanks to Saul Noam Zaret. It was a real treat talking to you. If you'd like to learn more about Saul, visit saulnoamzi.com. There you can learn about his research, the work he does as the founding editor of a journal of Yiddish studies, and you can check out his book, Jewish American Writing and World Literature, maybe to millions, maybe to nobody. Thanks as always to Nico Rivers for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering Joy and Conversation. To learn more about Nico's work, visit nicoriversrecording.com. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. To learn more about Alec's designs, visit warbirdcreative.com. And to learn more about his music, visit alechudson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazara. Our episodes feature music by the Boston-based Sephardic band, Voice of the Turtle. The group is no longer active, but their music is on Spotify, and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available to creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy and Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice and visiting our website, joyandconversationpodcast.com. Bashufaku. We'll see you next time.